Well, this morning we're going to be looking at some verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I encourage you to turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I'm going to read the first 11 verses of the chapter. That will be the passage we'll look at together shortly. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 1 through to 11. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that Christ... Sorry, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was also seen by me also, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, whom am not worthy to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace towards me was not in vain. But I laboured more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which was in me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Please send your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and we're going to look together at those 11 verses that we read at the beginning of the chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 1 to 11. As a family we had the privilege of spending two years in California. Uh, almost 15 years ago was when I was training uh, to be a pastor went to a Bible college, a seminary out there, and although um, a number of folks jokingly said to us we went for the weather, uh, we did honestly go for the quality of the instruction in the scriptures that we might be equipped um, to serve God's people. But um, in the first year we were there, we flew over in the July, and every uh, early autumn, uh, September, October time in, in, the Cali- in California, there is a season... Uh, after the dryness of the summer, when the winds start to blow, and you have something called the Santa Ana winds. And the ground is uh, so dry and parched that very easily, if there's a spark or even a fire that's lit outside that gets out of control, 
you have the beginning of a wildfire, as they describe it. And the wind, the Santa Ana winds, can whip up the fire and it can really become a very significant, dangerous thing. And we didn't know much about the California wildfires until we lived there. And within a few months, there was a very serious set of fires, such that in the town we lived called Escondido, there was a fire burning to the north, there was a fire burning to the south, there was one coming in from the west, and there was a small one beginning in the east, and we did feel rather trapped in the midst of that. Now, where we lived in the uh, flat that we were renting, uh, they issued an evacuation order, but they issued it from the road, one road, the other direction. So we were just outside of the evacuation zone. Now, if you're anything like me, that means I'm going anyway. <laughs> because if I think it's that close, I'm going to go. And we were part of a church there. Very kindly, a couple in the church had sent a number of folks to send messages out on a, an email list to say, if anyone needs to leave... We have some space in our home. Please come our way. And I said to Naomi, I think we should go. <laughs> so um, we'd only been there a couple of months. We had a, a small-ish car. We had at that stage one uh, infant son, Noah, our eldest. And we had an hour or two to get ready before they closed the motorway to the north because the wildfire was burning in that location. So we looked at our flat and we looked at our things and we looked at our car and we thought, right, what are we going to take? Made sure Noah was in the car. That's important, isn't it? <laughs> Made sure we had all the things you need for an infant child, which is uh, not a small number of things to fit in the car. Made sure we had the passports and the visas to make, ensure that if there was an issue, we'd be able to demonstrate that we were legally in the States. But it was quite a thing to consider if that wildfire had got kept burning and if it had burned up the apartment complex we were living in, and all of our earthly possessions were gone. What do we want in the car with us away that wouldn't be gone? Now let me ask you, Christian, or perhaps you're hearing another Christian, let me ask you as well. In terms of spiritually, the things that really matter to you, what things would you put in that car that you would not want to lose them? I'm not talking about your earthly possessions, important as they may be. I'm asking you the question about what things are so precious to you in your heart spiritually that you would never want to let them go? What things do you pray? Lord, I might forget many things as they get older. But please, please help me to remember and keep hold of these things. The book of 1 Corinthians, if you know the book, it's, it's a book where Paul addresses lots and lots of different issues, doesn't he? And he responds to questions the Corinthians are asking him. He responds and writes about concerns that he has about the Corinthian church. And it's a book of many subjects. But as Paul comes to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the penultimate chapter, the second to last chapter in the book, 
Remember, he's writing or he's having a secretary write down these things in a scroll. And so perhaps with the final few columns, the final few sections of a scroll that he's going to send to the Corinthian church with his instructions, he turns to those things which are most vital for them to hear. We know all of God's truth is precious. All of God's truth is essential and important. But some truths in God's word are absolutely vital. That's what Paul comes to in 1 Corinthians 15. Because he addresses the central truth of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And he wants to do that because there are some people in the Corinthian church or who are near to the church, who are denying the resurrection. They're saying, Jesus has not raised from the dead. You just think it was him, or it's just a story. There are others that didn't happen. It's just a story, they say. And there are others who, who are forgetting how central the resurrection is. They've got excited about other things. Other things matter to them more than Christ's resurrection. And that's a big problem. Because whilst all of God's truth matters, some of God's truth is especially important. Some of God's truth is vital because if you do not believe those things, then you are not saved. Now we're privileged, aren't we, to live in days where if you go around evangelical churches... We hear the resurrection is taught and known and embraced by Christians. And so that's a great thing. Perhaps we don't have exactly the same problem as they had in Corinth, of doubts about the resurrection. But I wonder if we do live in days when there is a danger that we might forget those things which are of central importance. We might forget those, those things which are vital, that we should not forget them. Because it's by believing and trusting and standing on those truths that we are saved. And so Paul turns in these verses to speak of the things which he says are of first importance. Look down at verse 3. He says, for I have delivered to you first of all. And he speaks about different things. We'll come to them in a second. But he's saying that there are certain things which are of first importance. We are to take our stand on those things. They are critical for our faith we are to put make sure as as we were packing our car in the midst of that wildfire thinking what could we not be without and paul says christ's resurrection is one of those truths that you must have in the car we're going to see three things briefly together uh, this morning we're going to see why we must stand on the gospel and paul's going to explain that in verse one and two and tell us that we must Firmly hold on to the gospel and he's going to tell us why that's so important. Then we're going to turn secondly uh, to see what we must keep hold of. And he's going to tell us we must keep hold of this gospel. So having told us why it's important, he's going to very clearly explain to us what it is we are to keep hold of. And then thirdly, in the last few verses, Paul's going to tell us how we keep hold of the gospel and to speak of the grace of God and the way in which he helps us to persevere 
in these central truths. So let's turn, first of all, uh, to look together at you need to hold firmly to the gospel. You need to hold firmly to the gospel. The first point, and here we're thinking what it is, sorry, why it is we need to keep hold of the gospel. And if you look at verse 1 and 2, Paul begins by taking the Corinthians back to the their conversion, and he says, verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, which I, he's speaking Paul here, preach to you, and which also you received, and in which you stand. Now notice the pattern there of what happened in verse 1. Paul says he preached the gospel to them. He established this church by preaching the gospel truth. Now, that implies that they heard what he said, because he was preaching. Then they received this gospel, which you also received. And then, crucially, he says, you took your stand upon this gospel. It was preached, they received it, and they stood on it. And then, verse 2, he says, by which also you were saved. Now that's really interesting because what Paul is doing here is he is helping us to understand what it means to have saving faith. And maybe you, you hear much of, of having faith in Christ and, and you sit and you wonder, yes, I understand that, but what does it mean to have saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it just hearing about Christ? Is it just agreeing these things are true or is it more than that and Paul says it's more than that it means three things it means that you know the gospel so it's been preached to you and you've heard it it means that you have received the gospel as true that is to say I agree with this that God speaks truth when he says that I'm a sinner that God speaks truth when he says that Jesus died for sinners and he rose for sinners and he's coming again to take me to glory. That by faith in him, I agree with that. But it's not that just that, friends, to say I've heard it and I agree with it. It is to take your stand upon this gospel. That is to say that you are going to stake all of your eternity upon the fact that Jesus died and rose for you. Plus nothing. None of your good works, none of your good intentions make you right with God. Not your daily Bible reading, as important as that is, makes you right with God. Not your church attendance, as important as that is, makes you right with God. Only Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection makes you right with God. I don't know if you've heard the story of the man called the Daredevil of Niagara. He was uh, a um, trapeze artist. That is to say, he would balance on ropes and he would have a... A pole, and he would walk across on his pole and balance. And he was a well-known man. He was called the Daredevil of Niagara. Um, and, uh, and he would stand at Niagara Falls, and he would put a rope across Niagara Falls from one side to the other, and he would walk back and forth. And the crowds would be there in their thousands to watch him do this. It was in the days where there was no safety nets or anything like that. He was a 
truly a daredevil in that sense. One time it was said that he went across on a bicycle and the people cheered. Another time it was said that he went across and took a little stove with him and stopped in the middle and cooked a fried egg and ate it. On another occasion, he took a wheelbarrow across with a sack of potatoes in it. Think of the weight of that. And it's, you know, you've got to keep it steady in the, the wind and everything else. And he got across the side and he came to the side where the crowd was, having gone across with the wheelbarrow with the potatoes in it. And he said, do you believe I can do it again? And all the crowd said, yes, we do. And then he said, OK, who's going to get in my wheelbarrow then? you see it friends you might say that you believe he can get across with the wheelbarrow but if you take your stand on what he said you'll get in the wheelbarrow and you'll say that's it my life's on the line but I believe you can do it that's saving faith Jesus Christ alone in his death and resurrection has paid everything for me and I'm going to take my stand on that truth and that reality and nothing else at all. And maybe you're here and you've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ so many times. What a privilege. And maybe you would say, I think it's true. If my friends at school or my colleagues at work and then mocking the gospel, I'll stand upon it and I'll, I'll, I'll defend it and I'll say, I think this is true and you need to believe it as well. But have you taken your stand upon it? That is to say, that gospel, that Jesus died for me, is my only hope in life and in death. It's vital that we do that because verse 2 it is only as we do that that we are saved. Friends, we live in a world where there are so many things crying out for our attention. We've got notifications on our phones pinging all the time. We've got adverts on the television or the radio or all around us. And everyone shouts out to us and say, care about this, don't they? Everyone's saying, make this cause what really matters to you. And in a world where there are so many things crying out for our attention, it is so easy to tune out and think that nothing really matters. This really does matter. Because you and I need salvation more than anything else. When I was a young teenage man of 16 years old, I'd heard the gospel many times. But I vividly remember having heard it clearly proclaimed to me on a summer camp, coming back from the camp and then hearing the news that a few of my friends driving on a car around the York Ring Road had gone above the speed limit, lost control and three of them had died. They were 16, 17 years old like me. Death can come to any of us. Young Old, everything in between. Jesus could return any moment. He could return today. Are you content? And here's the question. Are you content that if you did not make it home from the service this morning that you would be safe? 
because you're right with Jesus Christ and you trusted in him. Are you content and settled that if you did not wake up in the morning because the Lord Jesus returns or because the Lord brings your life to an end there and then, you would be safe? My prayer is that as we look at these verses together, you and I might hear and know everything we need to know to be saved. And that none of us will walk out of that door this morning without being right with God. It's vital stuff, isn't it? It's not just interesting. We're not just here talking about anything. We're talking about eternity. But it's vital not also, it's vital for those of us who maybe haven't made a commitment But it's also vital for all of us who've had. Because if you look at verse 2, Paul says, By which also you you are saved, if you hold fast to that word which, which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And I don't want anyone here to believe in vain. But there's a warning there, isn't there? And what's the warning? Well, the warning is exactly the same as the Lord Jesus Christ said, because he said there will be some who will appear to believe outwardly. So outwardly, as everyone looks on, they appear to be a Christian, but for lack of endurance, because they never really took their stand upon the gospel, they won't be saved. So everyone looks on at you and thinks, you're fine, you're a Christian, I I think you're a believer. Because on the outside, everything looks okay. But in your heart, you're not really standing on it. You're not really trusting in it. And so you don't endure in the gospel. Jesus taught the parable, didn't he? Do you remember the parable of the net in in Matthew uh, 13, where he says the net is like the kingdom of God that gathers in many people and many people come and they hear and perhaps appear to trust in the Lord Jesus. But on the day of the final reckoning, when we all stand before the God of heaven, on that day, some who outwardly profess but did not believe in their hearts and take their stand upon these truths, they'll be cast away, Jesus says. Solemn thought, isn't it? It's a solemn thought. It is possible, the Bible says, to backslide. That is to say, we genuinely come to faith. We stray from the Lord, but the Lord draws us back to him. And that's possible. But it's also possible to appear to believe, but for that faith to not be genuine, saving faith. And so, friends, please do not think that just because... You have stood here in the past as far as others can see, you're okay. You might be able to tell me something of a testimony. You might be able to say where and when you first heard the gospel. You might be even able to say the preacher preached on this Bible verse on that occasion. But a true testimony begins in the past, moves into the present... Is where we stand today. And by the grace of God we are kept. In that faith. Until the Lord Jesus returns. 
I hope verses 1 and 2 have grabbed your attention. They certainly grabbed mine when I looked at them. These verses are vital for all of us today. So now we turn to the second thing. Paul has said you need to hold firmly to the gospel. And he's given us two reasons why. Eternity is at stake for all of us. And there are some who may believe in vain because they've never really stood on these things and continued in the faith. But then we come secondly, where Paul says, you need to hold firmly to this gospel. You need to hold firmly to this gospel. And here we're going to look at verses 3 to 8. And, and in this section, Paul is telling us what it is we have to keep hold of. What it is we have to hold clearly in our hearts. And he turns to verse Three, those things he delivered to them first of all. That is the things of first importance. Two things Paul says. The first element of this this gospel message is that Christ died for our sins. We, We read there that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. You know, the Bible tells us that our biggest problem is our sin. There's much talk of all kinds of other problems in our world, aren't there, of climate change and and wars and other things. But the greatest problem in all the world is human sin because our sin separates us from the God of heaven. Our sin will mean that God will judge us eternally for what we have done. But the good news of the gospel, friends, is that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. He, he was perfect. He didn't deserve to die. He didn't die because he had done wrong. Pilate, the Roman governor, declared, I find no fault in him at all. Such was the perfection of the Lord Jesus. But the pure, perfect, righteous son of God was arrested by the authorities because they were afraid of him. He was tried in the mock courts on trumped up charges. He was beaten by the Roman soldiers unjustly. He was mocked as they put a crown of thorns on his head. And they beat him with clubs. And then he was forced to carry his cross. He was nailed to the cross on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And as he suffered... And he died for the sins of those who would believe in him. He was paying the punishment that you and I deserve. And at any moment, whilst he could have called down a host of angels to his defence, he didn't. Because he gave himself for our sins. For your sins, if you're trusting in him. He needed to die because God's justice demands punishment. The process, the legal process of justice is not complete until at the end of the trial, the judge pronounces the punishment upon the person if they've been found guilty. And then the justice process includes the fact that they pay the punishment if it's prison, if it's money, if it's something else. Whatever it is, it has to be paid for. And the reality is, friends, that your sin and my sin demands judgment. We are guilty before the God of heaven. 
And so the great question is this. Are you going to pay for your sins in judgment? Or will Jesus Christ have paid for your sins? And whether we trust in the Lord Jesus determines whether he pays or we pay. Why do we refuse that? Why is it that we won't turn to trust in the Lord Jesus? It's not because it's hard to be forgiven. Is it our pride that says that we think we should be able to fix it? Is it our stubbornness that says we won't, we won't accept that we're truly sinners? Or, or maybe it's our shame because we think we deserve it because we know we've done wrong. Friends, do not let any of those things stop you because you will have eternity to regret those reasons why you didn't trust in Jesus. Turn to Christ. Trust in his death for our sins. But Paul says, not only did Jesus die for our sins, end of verse 3, look at verse 4. And that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. So the second element of what we must believe is not only did Jesus die for our sins, but also Jesus rose for our sins according to the scriptures. He rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. If you've ever uh, booked a, a flight, or, or perhaps a better example is if you've ever signed up for maybe broadband, home broadband at home. You know, you kind of shop around, if you like me, for the cheapest price you can find. And there's always the headline price that they market to you, but then there's the optional extras they try and sell to you as well, isn't there? They try and get you to sign up for the security package, and they charge you two or three pounds for that. They try and get you to sign up for a better modem and internet access, and they try and charge you more for that. And if you're like me, I never go for those things because the basic's always just enough, isn't it? <laughs> or if you fly on a plane, you can get the basic fare or you can have the special options. You know, choose your seats, you can put something in the back in the load, you can have something to eat or all those things. There's the basic and there's the optional extras. Well, as we think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the resurrection is not an optional extra that you can choose to believe if you'd like to. It is essential. It's not a bolt-on that might bring you some extra benefits. It is integral to the gospel because if we do not believe in the resurrection, there is no salvation. What does Paul say as he says in Romans 10 and verse 9 as he speaks of what we are to do? To believe in the Lord Jesus, he says, Romans 10 verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you see that? The resurrection is central because if Jesus was never raised from the dead, what does that mean? Well, it means that he was a liar if he wasn't raised because he predicted that he would rise and so if he was a liar, he's imperfect. And if he's imperfect, he cannot be the sacrifice for our sins. He cannot bear our sins. And that, what does that mean? Well, that means that we are not forgiven. But we're still in our sins, which is the most horrible state to be in. But Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. 
that though his body was as cold and lifeless as the stone that he was laid upon for those three days, that same Jesus on the third day rose. That same Jesus walked out of the tomb and appeared to many. Friends, Buddha might have been an inspiring teacher for some, but when he died in 486 BC, that was the end of him. One of his followers said that his death was an utter passing away in which nothing whatsoever remains. That's pretty desperate, isn't it? Nothing left. Not so with Jesus. Jesus was raised on the third day. Jesus' tomb is not a shrine. Why? Because his body isn't there. He is alive. He rose in the power of an endless life. And he's alive today. Christian, you serve a living saviour. You don't go to a dead shrine to, to worship a leader who has died centuries ago. Because your saviour is in heaven, ever living. But then we might say, well, how is it we can know this is true? Jesus' resurrection happened over 2,000 years ago and over 2,000 miles ago. Away, sorry. How can we know it happened? Well, Paul gives us two quick reasons. He says, eyewitness testimony confirms it. Look down at verses 5 to 8. There he tells us that he was seen by Cephas. That's Peter. By the 12 disciples. By more than 500 people. Then by James and all the apostles. And then finally by Paul. Now, if you do the maths... That's at least 527 people. Many of whom, Paul says, are still alive. Why does he say that? Because he says you can go and check with them as to whether they saw it. He's saying check the evidence. And this means, friends, that the resurrection is based upon historical events. We do not believe nice ideas that help us to go to sleep at night... Because they're just comforting. We believe in a historical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That was verified by over 527 people. And there are four great realities for you to consider about the resurrection. You have got the death and burial of Christ. That shows that he really died. You've got the empty tomb. That shows that his body was no longer there. You've got the post-resurrection appearances where he's seen by hundreds of people. And then you've got the disciples who did not expect that Jesus would rise. Who struggled to believe that he was really alive when they were told he was. And then when they saw him and the evidence was clear, they would not stop speaking of the risen Lord Jesus. And if you remember... That's what the authorities wanted to silence. Because the resurrection changes everything. So let me ask you, what do you make of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If it's false and it didn't happen, then let's eat, drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. If it's true, it means one day all mankind will be raised. One day we'll all stand before the God of heaven. And we will all face 
a physical eternity in either heaven or hell. The resurrection confirms that. And there is one hope on that day. There is one way that we can be safe on that day. And it is that we have already taken our stand upon these truths that Jesus died and rose for us. Historical reality. And then very briefly, Paul says, verse 3 and 4, God foretold the resurrection. We don't have time to get into the detail, but do you notice a repeated phrase in verses 3 and 4 that says, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. And here Paul is saying, don't forget Christians as you think, did this really happen? Remember that God foretold the resurrection again and again and again in the Old Testament before Jesus came and lived and died. Now you might wonder what what scriptures is Paul thinking of when he speaks of the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ according to the scriptures. Maybe he's thinking of Isaiah 53 verses 10 to 12. Where there, we don't have time to read it, but there, just to quote a few lines, Isaiah speaks of one who will bear our iniquities, who will bear the sins of many. You know, Isaiah 53 is such a powerful passage that Orthodox Jews hear it read, and by the grace of God, God works by his spirit to convert them just as they read it. Because they think that's a New Testament text, but it's not. It's there in Isaiah, in the Old Testament, speaking of the death of Jesus, written around 700 years before Jesus died. It's astonishing, isn't it, you think about it? But not only that, friends, you have the death of Christ foretold in Isaiah 53, but also you have the resurrection of Christ from the the grave. And and maybe here Paul is thinking of of Proverbs, uh, sorry, Psalm 16, that well-known psalm where you... Hear these things, which is a psalm of David, but pointing forward to Christ, where we read Psalm 16, 9 to 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also rests in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, that's the realm of the dead, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. He won't be corrupt in the grave because he's only in the grave for three days. You will show me the path of life. So it's a great resurrection promise of the Lord Jesus Christ in Psalm 16. And that was written a thousand years before Jesus came. So so Paul is saying, Christian, don't forget the resurrection is a historical reality. Jesus' death was a historical reality, but also it was a reality that God foretold. It's really powerful when you think of it that way. Think of it like this. You and I cannot foretell the events of tomorrow try it go home this afternoon write down what you think might happen tomorrow now i'm not talking about what you have for breakfast you have some control over that don't you i'm talking over perhaps um you know the big things that are going to happen tomorrow the top 10 news stories on the bbc news the events around the world you might have a shot at it but you're not going to get the detail right. If you did, you'd be a billionaire because you'd invest in the right stocks that are going to affect all the changes. We can't predict tomorrow, can we? But the eternal God, who is outside of time, planned the historical events of Jesus' salvation. 
And he wrote them down in the Old Testament so that you and I might know their significance and might see that they are, they are eternally significant. So coming back to where we began in verse 1 and 2. Take your stand on this gospel. Hear it. Agree with it. Believe it. Stand upon it. Trust it in your heart. And hold firmly to it. And now we come thirdly and and finally and briefly to the third point. Which is that God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. Let's look down at verses 8 and 9 and 10. Paul begins in verse 8 by using himself as a picture of one who is an eyewitness to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? He says that he saw Jesus. And then he turns to speak of himself and says that he was one who was abnormally born. Now, what does that mean? Well, um, or born out of due time. It means that he was the most unlikely person who would believe. Now, why is that? Well, if you know anything about Paul, before he was a Christian, he was called Saul. And Saul was one of the most committed persecutors of Christians. And he says, verse 9, I wasn't worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I held the cloaks of the men who stoned Stephen. I hated The gospel of Jesus Christ so much, I was willing to encourage others to kill those who were declaring it. But then what happened, verse 10? The grace of God worked in Paul. The grace of God worked and saved him from his sins. And it's as if Paul is saying, though I have this mountain of sin, I mean, What a horrible thing to have done before you were a Christian. Persecuted the church of God. And yet God saved him. And if we're honest friends, we all have our own mountains of sin, don't we? Maybe you're aware of yours. But if God's grace could extend to Paul, God's grace can extend to you. Do not let any of your sin hold you back from coming to Jesus Christ. There is no sin that is too great that Jesus Christ cannot forgive you. Or perhaps you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And you say, Matthew, look at verse 1. I have done everything in verse 1. I have heard, I have received, I have taken my stand upon this. I know that I've trusted in the Lord Jesus and I'm, I'm trying to go on with him. But holding firmly to this gospel, what Paul calls us to do in verse 2, holding firmly to this word which was preached to us, that's hard. And there are times that I think I don't have it in me. There are times when I think I have so many doubts because of things in my life personally, because of hard situations around me, because of health struggles, because of family turmoil, because of workplace difficulties. And sometimes I think the struggle is so great to keep on going as a Christian, I don't know if I can hold on. 
Well, as we close, friends, I want you to see the encouragement of verse 10. What does Paul say at the end of verse 10? Yet not I, but the grace of God which was within me. And so verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God, I am what I am. You are a Christian today by the grace of God. You are a believer today because God saved you by his grace. And God's grace works in you as a Christian such that for every believer, we work as hard as is needed such that we keep going because God makes us work like that. That's the grace of God working in us. It will be hard, but we will be able to testify, as Paul does in 2 Corinthians verse 12, my grace was sufficient for you. And so whatever it is in your life, that you say, Matthew, it's really hard to keep going. Whatever it is that makes it difficult to keep going as a Christian, you think, I don't know if I have the strength tomorrow to keep going in light of that. Remember, God's grace is always sufficient. That's the confidence that God's people have always lived by and died by. The great hymn writer, William Gadsby's final words at death was one phrase he repeated three times. Free grace, free grace, free grace. And so when our momentary lives are done, and when eternity is before us, whenever that may be, those who have stood on these things, if you today have stood on these things and by the grace of God continue to stand on these things you will not have believed in vain and our testimony will be yet not I but the grace of God that was within me Amen Close our-